to Isaiah chapter 5. We're continuing our study of this really final chapter in the opening section of the book of Isaiah. And um, chapter 6 really begins a, a new section in the book, and so we're wrapping up the initial section. And Isaiah chapter 5 is, as we already know, a truly tragic chapter. And um, I was thinking about it this week, and um, as I was preparing, I was just, it's just such a, such a tragic chapter that um, I was struggling with the fact that this message is going to be kind of an entry into tragedy. It's going to be a time of lament, of tragedy, and, you know, I think we, we all kind of like to move on quickly from harder topics and move on to happier or more cheerful things, but I think we really need to avoid the doing what uh, the legends say that uh, Nero did when Rome was burning, right? What did he do? Supposedly he took out a fiddle and played a happy song. We don't want to be fiddling while Rome burns, as it were. So we're going to spend some time today contemplating the tragedy that is revealed in this chapter. As we saw a couple weeks ago, chapter 5 begins in verses 1 through 7 with the song of the vineyard, which graphically describes the spiritual downfall of ancient Israel. Israel, in this illustration, is God's vineyard, and it had been given everything it needed in order to produce the choicest grapes. But instead, it produced nothing but sour, rotten, worthless grapes, what verse 2 describes as stink fruit. Instead of justice, there was bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, there were cries of distress. And so, as God announces through the prophet Isaiah, judgment is coming. So we've been asking the last couple weeks, what happened? What were the causes of this tragic downfall of this ancient society? And for the past two weeks, we've been studying three major causes of ancient Israel's spiritual downfall. The first major cause of ancient Israel's downfall was given in verses 8 through 10, individualistic materialism produced isolation. Remember from two weeks ago, we saw that a selfish pursuit of material things became a higher priority than loving God and loving their neighbors, and they were illegally and unethically acquiring the lands of the poor, squeezing the poor out, and violating God's law in doing so, and so they became isolated by their own greed. They had to live alone in the midst of the land as verse 8 talks about. Individualistic materialism produced isolation. The second major cause of ancient Israel's downfall was given in verses 11 through 17. Immersive merriment produced ignorance. They were so consumed by their pursuit of entertainment that they didn't pay attention to the things of God. And so they descended into truly spiritual ignorance. They simply had disregarded the things of God. They didn't have time for it. They didn't think about it. They pushed God to the margins and eventually out of their lives altogether. Immersive merriment produced ignorance. They partied their way to spiritual apathy and spiritual ignorance. And 
Verse 13 sadly says, therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Verse 12, they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Immersive merriment produced spiritual ignorance. Well, the third major cause of their downfall is in verses 18 through 30, and that is that inverted moralism produced iniquity. Inverted moralism produced iniquity. Let's read verses 18 through 30 together. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. This is a tragic chapter. And inverted moralism had produced iniquity and iniquity had led to judgment. Well, last week we began our study of this section by talking about the tragic picture which Isaiah paints in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and drag sin as if it is with cart ropes. He has Painting, he's painting a picture to them, one that would be familiar with them, of an ox strapped to a cart. And this cart is full of refuse, of filthy and putrid things, of sin and iniquity, but they are bound to it by the cords of falsehood, by lies and deceptions, and by false teaching. But instead of trying to break free from this burden of sin, they had begun dragging it with them. They had willingly become participants in it and were dragging this cart of sin and it was picking up speed and going faster and faster and careening off a cliff of judgment. They're rushing headlong toward destruction. They're out of control like a cart 
rushing for a cliff. So God sends Isaiah to warn them, to tell them to rein it in and to repent and to turn around and to be freed and cast off the burden of sin and follow after him who is holy and good. But tragically, verse 19 records, they respond to Isaiah's warnings with sarcastic mockery. They say, let God make speed, let him hasten his work so that we can see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One draw near and come to pass that we may know it. In other words, Isaiah, you and the other prophets have been babbling on and on about coming judgment for a long time now. You'd better tell God to hurry up and bring this supposed judgment quickly. Otherwise, those few old-fashioned people who still believe those silly legends are going to finally realize the whole thing is a joke. Let God speed up. If you want us to believe it, let it come. They're daring God. Second Peter 3, 3 through 9 reminds us that in the last days, similar times will come where people will mock. They'll say, where's this promise of his coming? Where's this whole day of judgment thing? Everything continues just as it has always. This whole judgment is coming thing is just a myth, just a legend but Peter says they don't realize that the reason judgment hasn't come yet is because God is being patient. It says he doesn't want anyone to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. But tragically, people often mistake God's patience as evidence that coming judgment is just pretend. It's not pretend. It is very, very real. But God is withholding his judgment out of his loving patience towards you. He longs for you to repent and to be saved from the wrath to come. But there will come a day when God's wrath will be poured out on this world. We read about that in the book of Revelation. Judgment is coming. And in Isaiah 5, verse 26, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah tells the people, judgment is coming quickly. You've dared God. Hey, bring it sooner if, you're, if you want us to believe in you. And Isaiah says, God has heard your mockery, and he will do exactly what you've dared him to do. He will bring judgment, and it will come quickly, swiftly, faster than you can possibly imagine. Well, that brings us to verse 20, which I think is one of the most important verses in the Bible for understanding not only the main challenges of history, but the primary challenge of our day. Because this describes our society. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This verse is the very definition of what I am calling inverted moralism. And I want to spend most of our time this morning talking about verse 20. But before we do that, I want to continue on and get the rest of the context by finishing our study of the rest of chapter 5. So we're going to just kind of survey uh, verses 21 through 30 and then come back to verse 20 and talk about it some more look at verse 21 it says woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight this is a strong warning against the sin of pride you know the psalmist says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path 
But so many people say, I don't need a light for my feet or a lamp into my path. I can choose my own way. They forget they're mortals. You can't see one minute in front of you. You can't see one day in front of you, one month in front of you, one year in front of you. You need the light of God's word, but in pride, people decide to jettison the word of the Lord and to trust in their own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. But pride, being wise in your own eyes, causes you to depart from the path and into darkness and into destruction. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. A warning against pride. Then in verses 22 through 23, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. This is a strong warning against the injustices which result from a love of alcohol, particularly a love of alcohol by officials who make judicial decisions, who make law or interpret law or enforce the law. They're big men in their own eyes, right? They're heroes. Notice the biting sarcasm. Woe to those who are heroes in doing what? Drinking wine. They're valiant men in mixing strong drink. Now you go to the college campuses and who's the big man on campus? He's the one who can do 10 shots where the other guys can only do eight. Wow, big man. He can throw down 10 cups of poison and then lie in his own vomit for a day. What a big man. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. Valiant men in making strong drink and particularly woe to those verse 23 who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right you know in that verse verse 23 the hebrew term for justice appears three times in slightly different forms the wicked were being justified and justice due to those who are just was being denied this verse would if you heard it if you were one of the people hearing it originally, would really have hit hard. The wicked are justified, the just are denied justice. This is wrong. And it was caused by inverted moralism. Inverted moralism resulted in the unjust being declared just and the just being declared unjust. Because all of the standards of right and wrong had been turned upside down. And they were measuring things with a false ruler, therefore coming to false conclusions. They had inverted morals and then they had intoxicated themselves so even when they had the right measuring stick, they couldn't measure justice correctly. Justice is twisted into injustice when truth is inverted. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. If you say that those who are righteous are wicked and those who are wicked are righteous, you have committed an abomination before the Lord. 
this is a big deal. Who is righteous? Who is wicked? You have to get that right. When inverted moralism produces iniquity and when iniquity produces injustices, the consequences are severe. Look at verse 24. Therefore, right, because of these injustices, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. This is true in our day. People have rejected God's law and they despise his word. They despise it. They revile it. They can't stand it. Go to some college campus and say to someone, I'd like to share with you a passage of scripture from the Bible and see what kind of reaction you get. They despise the word of the Lord. And the consequences for that are severe. I want you to notice in verse 24 that the verb tenses are future. Verse 24 is talking about a judgment that's coming in the future, but in verse 25, Isaiah switches to past tenses to describe something that had already happened. He says, on this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, past tense, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. But even after this, his anger is still not spent. His hand of judgment is still stretched out. Judgment has already happened and there's more to come. Well, what was this past judgment that Isaiah is referring to. Well, he's referring to a terrible earthquake that had occurred in the days of Uzziah the king, which is mentioned in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, and in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. When Israel obeyed the Lord, the Lord gave them special protection from the natural disasters which plagued the rest of the world. He gave them an unusual and miraculous exemption from some of the calamities that befall the rest of the created world. But when they disobeyed, God removed his hand of protection and he not only withdrew his hand of protection, he then actively stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. I want you to note that this was a very specific judgment and a very direct action of the Lord. He stretched out his hand and he struck them down. Now, does this verse mean that all natural disasters are God reaching out his hand and striking people down? The answer to that is no. This is a specific judgment in a very specific context, which occurred because of specific violations of the Mosaic covenant by God's chosen people, Israel. So it wouldn't be good hermeneutics, it wouldn't be good Bible interpretation to take this verse out of context and to imply that other natural disasters such as the tragedy that just occurred in Turkey are some sort of direct punishments. What are natural disasters? Natural disasters are a part of the general curse of death which has descended on this world because of sin. Because of mankind's fall into sin, Genesis says that the wages of sin is death. Death has descended upon this whole world and there's a million ways to die. Disease, disaster, all kinds of ways, violence, other ways. 
And natural disasters are one way in which death has descended on this world. They're part of the general curse, not a specific judgment, but the general curse. So we have no basis, and it would be wrong to speculate and to say that some certain natural disaster was befalling a certain people for a certain reason, because unless God reveals that to us, we can't know that. But here we do know it, because God did reveal it to the prophet Isaiah. Unlike most natural disasters, the earthquake that had hit Israel was a direct divine judgment. He had reached out his hand in judgment, and then at the end of verse 25 it says, and even after this, his anger was not spent, his hand is still stretched out. I want you to notice the word anger. God stretched out his hand in anger. Wrath. We don't like to think about God this way. And you can make up a fairy tale version of God where he lets evil go unpunished. You can make up that version of God in your own mind, but that won't change the reality of what is coming. There is a day of judgment. There is a day called the day of the Lord in which God's wrath will be poured out on the evil and wickedness of this world and upon all who refuse to repent. Sadly, Israel did not repent after the earthquake. And so Isaiah prophesies that something even worse than the earthquake is coming. Verse 26, he says, he will also lift up a standard to the distant nation. He will whistle for it from the ends of the earth and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. There's a coming invasion. That's how chapter five ends with the doom and gloom of the coming Assyrian invasion. Inverted moralism had produced iniquity and the consequence of unrepentant iniquity was for them invasion. This is a tragic downfall. This is one of the great tragedies of history and because it's so tragic and because the New Testament encourages us to learn lessons from what happened to them, we need to dig a little deeper into what verse 20 can tell us about the causes of this terrible calamity. Look again at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Everything had been inverted and turned upside down. But I want you to notice something. Notice that the people were not denying the reality or the importance of good and evil. They didn't deny the reality of good and evil. They didn't even deny the importance of good and evil. Their worldview was not an amoral worldview like the one which had occurred earlier in Israel's history. We read about it in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Remember where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were, in that period, amoral. They just didn't think there were set standards of right and wrong. So everyone just did whatever was right in their own eyes. That's not what was occurring in the time of Isaiah. They weren't amoral. They believed in morals. They believed in right and wrong. Their worldview also was not relativistic. They weren't like Pilate who asked Jesus, what is truth anyway? They weren't moral relativists. They weren't relativistic. They didn't deny the reality of truth and of right and wrong. In other words, if you put it in philosophical terms, they weren't postmodernists. Postmodernists believe in moral relativism. You You have your truth and I have mine and you have your morals and I have mine and 
There's no absolute truth, no absolute morals. They weren't postmodernists. And by the way, almost no one today is a postmodernist. Postmodernism arose in the 1960s and died off in the 1990s. So it kind of irks me when sometimes I see churches, whole conferences devoted to helping, equipping people to you know, relate to our postmodern culture. I'm like, well, I'm glad you're training people to minister in the 1990s. Postmodernism is gone. It's receded in the dustbin of history and been replaced by something else. And what it has been replaced by is not a amoral relativistic worldview, but a very moralistic worldview, but one that is inverted. People in Isaiah's day believed in moral absolutism, not moral relativism. They were religious people. They believed in moral absolutes. They just had the wrong ones. They weren't amoral. They were moralists. Now, I didn't say that they weren't immoral. I said they were amoral. They weren't amoral, but they were immoral. An amoral worldview is one where there is an absence of moral standards, where you have your truth, I have mine, where you have your morals, I have mine, where there's no absolute truth and no objective binding moral laws, whereas an immoral worldview says, yeah, there are standards of truth and morality, but I can disregard and disobey them without consequence. They weren't amoral. They believed in morals. They believed in right and wrong. They didn't believe the consequences would come. But while they were indeed immoral, they were doing things and didn't believe consequences would come, something even darker and deeper was going on. They weren't amoral, and they weren't just immoral. They were, if I can coin a term, unmoral. Unmoral. They were turning truth and morals upside down. They were religious. They were spiritual. They believed in morality, but they wanted to define it for themselves. They wanted to redefine truth and morals so that it would suit them. They didn't deny that there's this kind of universally binding law. They didn't deny the reality of, of right and wrong. They didn't deny, to use an illustration, they didn't deny the existence of the court, but they thought they could step into the judge's seat, dethrone God, and make the law themselves. They could define what's right and wrong. They could decide what's good and evil. They could decide what is love and what is hate. They could define what is dark and what is light. They could decide for themselves. They could take the word of God and despise it and reject it and craft a moral code of their own. They were following the original lie, lie of Satan. What was the original lie of Satan? Well, he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3-5 that they could be like God knowing good and evil that was Satan's original lie you don't have to you don't have to sit there and have God tell you what's right and God tell you what's wrong you can decide you can be like him you can say this is right that's wrong this is right that's wrong that's true that's false you can be the judge you can be not one accountable to the law you can be the one who makes the law and then imposes it on others. 
Satan told them they didn't have to let God define right and wrong. They could decide what is right and wrong for themselves. But a tragedy happens when people buy that lie because when fallen and depraved human beings attempt to define truth and morals for themselves, their conclusions wind up being just as twisted and wicked as they are. We sit here and marvel in history. How could the German society in the 1930s embrace Nazism? I'll tell you why. It's right here in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. They called good evil. They called evil good. They swapped darkness for light and light for darkness. They chose bitter over sweet and the tragedy went forward. It all started with inverted moralism. When fallen and depraved human beings attempt to define truth and morals for themselves, their conclusions will be just as twisted and wicked as they are. Jesus addresses this issue in Matthew 12, 34, when he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You see, Jesus is saying, look, you are evil. And how can you, who are evil, speak what is good? He calls them a brood of vipers. It's like a pit full of snakes. He's saying a pit full of snakes is not going to produce this moral code of ethics and goodness and sweetness and love. No, no. They're going to speak out of their nature. And human beings are sinful and fallen and when we try to define truth and morality, we wind up substituting darkness for light. We twist the truth because we ourselves are twisted. We pervert morality because we ourselves are perverted. Romans 1 says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It says we take the truth and trade it for lies. It says we profess to be wise but become fools. We take the truth and turn it on its head. We take sound morals and we flip them upside down. We invert things. We invert truth and morals. So the problem that Isaiah was addressing was way deeper than a denial of truth and morals. It was way deeper than simple disobedience to truth and morals. It went all the way to something darker and deeper. It was an inversion of truth and morals. Nothing is more wicked than doing evil and calling it good. It's bad to do evil. Sometimes people do evil and they know it's evil. I know, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I'm doing it. That's not nearly as wicked as when you do evil and you call it good, especially if you put God's name on it. Right became wrong, wrong became right. Things that people should be ashamed of became celebrated with pride. Things that should be celebrated became objects of scorn and shame. It wasn't just that they weren't holy, they had become unholy. They were religious, they were spiritual, they were moralist, but they were inverted moralists. And so they spiritualized their sin. They considered themselves to be good people. They actually took spiritual and religious pride in their iniquities. They had not only abandoned true worship and true holiness, they had become worshipers of everything that was unholy. Let's fast forward now to our day. And what do we see? We see a song that's actually entitled Unholy, performed at the Grammys by people dressed as perverted demons. Right before that was performed, 
a major television network sent out a tweet, and the tweet said this, we are ready to worship. Right before a song called Unholy, where people dressed like demons celebrate iniquity, a major television network says we're ready to worship. This should deeply disturb us. And it should disturb us that this shocking abomination was celebrated and applauded by a who's who of American celebrities, including, sadly, many Christian artists who were present. But there's even more disturbing things that have happened recently. More and more major Christian denominations, and I sometimes wonder if I should be saying ex-Christian denominations, more and more have formally adopted the upside-down inverted morals of the world. Just this month, the Church of England became the latest to formally capitulate to the spirit of the age. They voted to allow religious blessing ceremonies for sexual perversions. What does this mean? It means that in church and in the name of God, they will be calling evil good and putting God's name on things that Scripture says are to God an abomination. They'll be calling evil good and doing so in church and in God's name. Scripture says, woe to them. Just like ancient Israel in the days of Isaiah, in our time, the people, the politicians, and even many pastors have become those who call evil good. The people, the politicians, and now even many pastors are calling evil good. They dismember babies, call it health care. They indulge their lusts, call it love. They parade their perversions and call it pride. They indoctrinate kids in the godless and ridiculous 19th century myth of evolution, and they call it education. They mutilate and sterilize children, teens, and adults and call it gender affirmation surgery. They call evil good. They're proud of it. They flaunt it, they celebrate it, and they are trying to force and coerce you into affirming it too. That's the spirit of the age. We're not only going to invert the moral code, we're going to force and coerce you to do the same. They're not just calling evil good, they're also calling good evil. If you preach the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, you will be accused of religious intolerance. If you don't want your children to be indoctrinated in the ideology of sexual perversions, you'll be called hateful. If you're pro-life, you're, you'll be accused of being anti-women. If you refuse to be coerced into bearing false witness against God's created order, against biological realities, by calling those whom God made a man a woman or calling those whom God made a woman a man, you'll be called a bigot. And it just keeps going on and on, getting worse and worse, and the inverted moralists keep getting more and more aggressive. See, because they actually believe that right is wrong and wrong is right. They've been calling good evil and evil good for so long that they truly have substituted darkness for light. They're, they've embraced an ideology of darkness and they think it's light. 
They think it's good. They think it's noble. They even think it's loving. They think it's loving to mutilate the bodies of children, to dismember them in the womb. They think that's love. But if you dare to go and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, they look at you and say, get away from me, you bigot. America, just like ancient Israel, shortly before their downfall, has been calling good evil and evil good for a long time. And we are becoming what that song, which was sung at the Grammys, very vilely proclaimed but accurately proclaimed. We are becoming unholy. The book of Isaiah warns us that that doesn't end well. Unless we repent, we too will face the six woes that are announced in Isaiah 5. Verse 8, woe to the cruel and greedy, those who trample others to get what they want. Verse 11, woe to the frivolous partiers, those who live for trite and shallow entertainment. Verse 18, woe to the sacrilegious mockers, those who make fun of anyone who confronts evil. Woe to the false teachers, those who call good evil and evil good. Verse 21, woe to the smug and arrogant, those who profess to be wise but are really fools. And verse 22, woe to the corrupt drunkards, those who prioritize addictive pleasures above the rights and the needs of others. Six times in this chapter, a woe is pronounced. And when I look at those six woes, I can't help but marvel how something written 2,700 years ago so accurately describes what we're seeing in our society today. I don't know what consequences America may face in the future because of our inverted moralism. I don't know that. But I do know what consequences ancient Israel faced, and they were heavy. In verse 8, they unethically and illegally acquired the ancestral lands of the poor. So in verses 9 through 10, a reverse tithe was imposed on their harvest by God. In verses 11 through 12, they ignored the Lord because they were too busy partying. So in verses 13 through 17, they go into exile because of their lack of knowledge, and the party is over. In verse 18, they pulled iniquity along like an ox dragging a cart. So in verse 28, they will be run over and dragged by enemy chariots. In verse 19, they mock the Lord, saying that if judgment is really coming, he better speed it up. So in verse 26, God responds by summoning the Assyrian army who advanced with shocking speed. In verse 20, they substitute darkness for light. So in verse 30, they are punished with darkness and distress, and the darkness overcomes the light. In verse 21, they're arrogant and proud. So in verses 15 and in verse 24, they're humbled and abased. In verse 23, they justify the wicked. So in verses 25 through 30, they themselves are judged by the Holy One of Israel. The consequences were heavy. What they sowed, they reaped. They preferred evil over good. They preferred darkness over light. They preferred bitter over sweet. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. The primary way God judges is by giving people exactly what they want. They don't want him. They don't want his law. And he gives them exactly that. He gives them separation from him. But because he is light and he is life and he is love, when they separate from God, they separate from light, love. They cut themselves off from the only source 
of truth and of eternal life. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Those who call good evil and evil good will reap the rotten fruits of the evils they have chosen. That's what happened to ancient Israel. Individualistic materialism had produced isolation. Immersive merriment had produced ignorance. Inverted moralism had produced iniquity. And Isaiah warns that iniquity would soon produce invasion. This downfall, individualistic materialism, immersive merriment, and inverted moralism reads like a description of our own day, doesn't it? May we heed the warning given to them. Well, is there any hope? Does everything end with the sobering phrase at the end of verse 25 when it says, for all of this, God's anger is still not spent. His hand of judgment is still stretched out. Is there any hope? Especially when that phrase that God's anger is not spent, his hand of judgment is still stretched out, that same phrase appears four more times. It appears in chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. Is there any hope? We're going to find out next week. But I decided to end here where chapter 5 ends this week. Why? Because we don't want to play a fiddle while Rome burns. Sometimes there is a time to be sobered and to sit and lament long enough to learn some lessons. What are the lessons God wants you to learn in regard to these three major causes of spiritual downfall? Has individualistic materialism ensnared your heart? Has immersive merriment so distracted you from God that you've become spiritually ignorant? Has inverted moralism caused you to plunge into iniquity thinking that what you're doing is good? Lord, pray as we are sobered by this tragic chapter that we would not be distracted Lord, there's a time to look upon a tragedy and to learn lessons from it. Lest we repeat the mistakes of history. Lord, you've given us this tragic warning as an example so that we would not repeat these errors. So Lord, forgive us of individualistic materialism. Forgive us from the idolatry of immersive merriment. Forgive us for inverting morals, discarding and despising what you have said is right and replacing it with our own. Forgive us for choosing darkness over light. Lord, we pray that there would be no one here who would leave without turning from sin and finding their salvation and therefore their hope, their light, and their life in you. We give you praise for being our Savior as we will learn next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.